All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey. And far too often, we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick, or Martin Frederick, depending on, I guess, time of day. So, yep. Mart- Martin, how are you today? <laughs> Martin, Marty, depends on where I'm at. If yeah. I'm at REI, I'm Martin. If I'm at home, I'm Marty, or get over here or knock that off. You know, I'm still a child at heart. I probably shouldn't say what I call you, at least not at the (laughs) beginning of an episode, at least let people get into the content that I can start, you know? (laughs) Yeah. We we don't want to scare anyone away from wanting to listen to the rest of the podcast. Right. Right. And so I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to refrain from calling you what I like to call you. And then they can figure that out at a later point in time. Yeah. Well, Josh, it's cool because I just visited uh, Vermont and I oh, didn't cool. realize that there were actual, real life, Montreal Canadiens fans in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that anybody actually liked that team, but I met people that were like, "I was like, oh, like you guys like hockey? Oh yeah, love them. Love. I'm, I'm a big Montreal fan." And I'm like, "Yeah, wait, really? I didn't know fans of the Canadiens actually existed." <laughs> yeah, well, NT Wright. When we had NT Wright on, he was a Canadiens fan. Yeah, I have uh, one of my employees. Uh, she's one of my bartenders. She's a Canadiens fan. See, it's and then, sort of like when someone tells you, oh, have you ever seen a red Toyota Camry? You start seeing all sorts right, of exactly. Toyota Camrys for some reason. So like, yeah, it's it's got to be the way. Now that I've met an actual in real life Canadiens fan, now all of a sudden, like, oh, Josh, like, I know this person. And then remember, yeah. right? it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about all that stuff. So, right. No, I'm, I'm with you. It's crazy, too. Like, uh, actually, so my hockey season just started back up on Sunday. Um, that was a lot of fun. But uh, one of our players that hasn't played with us for the past two seasons um, is back. And his name is Max. And he's a legitimate French Canadian. Like Dude. speaks fluent French, was born in Canada, lived there till he was like 25, moved to America because he fell in love with an American woman and didn't listen to the song and is now <laughs> a U.S. citizen. <laughs> but anyway, it was so cool to have him back. He's a huge Canadians fan. And then also on top of that, not only did the Canadians come back three from three to one deficit in the playoffs, like down three games to one to beat Toronto 
They just swept the Jets 4-0. Wow. Wow. So they're they're making a splash in the playoffs this year, to say the least. Yeah, so that's probably why they were out with their colors flying, you know, because it's where I was was about an hour from Montreal. So, like, it makes sense that there would be fans there. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> being from legit hockey town, yeah, that's right, Detroit fans. I said it. Chicago is hockey town. You know, it's hard, it's, it's hard to imagine anyone else as anything else. I mean, I know you as a Capitals fan, but that's about it, so. <laughs> that's fair enough. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting, too, when you said, like, their colors, it reminded me, like, oh, yeah, Montreal Canadiens, they're red, white, red, white, and blue as well. And I just yeah. think it's that then my ADHD brain jumped and said, yeah, isn't it funny that, like, here in America, everybody's so hyped about, oh, red, white, and blue, I bleed red, white, and blue. But then if you, like, look at world flags, like, half of them are red, white, and blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, including like, the French flag. It's which not is the reason- unique why <laughs> yeah the french flag is also red white and blue it's, which is yeah. exactly why montreal canadians would be red white and blue <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing to do with america there we go so which just, by the way i'm saying. i'm well aware that me saying chicago is hockey town is like super aggravating to anybody outside of chicago but i don't care so. yeah there you go it's our well, podcast we can say what we want yeah this is our podcast right jace we Hashtag can talk about flux. hockey for as long as we want so. yeah jace fast forward <laughs> through this part if you don't want to hear it yeah so well, Josh, but Jace can stop fast forwarding now because so uh, I wanted to <laughs> introduce our guest. We have a guest with us today, everybody. Um, so before I introduce him, just to say I have known this man for 23 years. Um, when I was uh, a young idiot doing stupid stuff, he was calling me stupid to my face and telling yeah. me how dumb I was. You were doing hood rat stuff with your friends. That's right. And when I was in, <laughs> when we were in German class together in high school and I didn't study and he did, and he like understood the language and I didn't. And I was like trying to pretend like I was all hard and funny. He was showing me his like a pluses and nineties and my 50% and 60% tests and putting me in my place. <laughs> but the cool thing is, is that set the stage for a great friendship between he and I. So I uh, just want to introduce uh, father Nebo. How are you today? Great Marty. Super happy to be here with you, man. Super excited to reconnect with you after all these years. Yeah. Yeah. So um just a couple brief background things uh, just to get to know you a little bit. So um, just tell us who you are. What do you do? Why are you here? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> well, my full name is Neboy Shapantich, but I'm, I'm a Greek Orthodox priest. And, uh, you know, in, in Greece, my name is not very common because I'm from Serbia. <laughs> it's a little hard for for people to say my name so ever since i was a kid you know I, I went by nebo and then you know when i was living in gurney around the same areas as you uh you know the that the midwest they can't even do that so they just did nebo which is what everyone would call me by for years <laughs> but um yeah i mean i i grew up north of chicago in gurney illinois and uh go blackhawks and uh what's it called um went to seminary in Boston and uh, you and I actually met up there a couple of times as well when you were in seminary and then I uh, met my wife who's from California and we moved out to California and I've been here ever since in the Bay Area nice. so I'm in uh, San Jose now and uh, I'm the assistant priest at one of the churches here awesome so 
clearly we know who your hockey team is. We don't have any oh, question awesome. about that. And uh, for the like one of the first times ever, uh, except for when we had, um, oh man, I always forget his name, but we had him on a while ago. And he's also from Chicago. He's a seminary professor. He was also a Blackhawks fan. Professor um, David Fitch. Martin. Yeah, David Fitch. Yeah, I, Josh always remembers and I always forget for whatever. I'm sorry, Professor David Fitch, that I keep forgetting your name. If you Who's ever not listening with, to this yeah, podcast. Never listens to our podcast. <laughs> um, so you're a Blackhawks fan. So we're good yeah. there. We're good. We there. are good. Yeah. Sorry, Josh. No, it's, it is, man. <laughs> it's okay. Have you ever got to, uh, since you're in San Jose, have you ever been to the Shark Tank? The San Jose I have not, Shark but I live down the street from it. I really want to go. I went to, uh, I went to a D-League game with the Barracudas. Oh, cool. Which was super fun. Yeah. Super, super fun. Awesome experience. Super great atmosphere. The Shark Tank is awesome. It's oh, literally I'm... like 15 minutes of drive from my house, maybe like a 45-minute walk. That's on my house. bucket list of places so to watch a hockey fun. game. Yeah. If you come if you come out here, you gotta stay in my house. Sounds good. Sure. All right. That's good for me. All right. <laughs> it's better for me, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so as you know, uh, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And one of the questions that we just like to ask people, just to kind of get to know them a little bit better, give our, our listeners uh, some more perspective. What do you feel is the most important aspect of your faith that you had to rethink? Yeah, man, I really like this question. And to be honest, I've been listening to your podcast. So I hear, I get to hear everyone else. I get, I get to think about it, you know? And even in thinking about it, I was like, what am I going to say? Like, I don't really know. But the, the incredible thing for me is that honestly, my dad's a priest. And so I grew up in the church my whole life. And I went to church almost every single day. For a while there, we went every day to church. And, um, you know, I never really knew what I was doing there. And then I went to seminary and it was really a, a total hand of God thing for me to even go there. But when I was there, the thing that I really encountered was the actual Christ. Like I actually got to know him for who he actually is instead of this image or this thought or this tradition or this whatever I lived for my whole life. One of the reasons why I went to seminary was because my dad said, hey, you know, when you go there, they're going to explain to you everything about the faith. And I said, wait, 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 wait. So you mean to tell me someone's going to explain to me what I've been doing for the last 19 years? Sign me up for that <laughs> because I have no idea what's been going on, man. And so I, uh, I, that was one of the main reasons, that was one of the biggest reasons I went because it was mind blowing to me that I could get a degree in something that is by essence unknowable. <laughs> like how can I get a bachelor's degree and then I could become a master of the divine? Like how does that make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. So these, these are the kinds of philosophical things that I found really interesting. And, and when I actually encountered Christ, it totally changed my life, honestly. I, I, in many ways, and, and really, I, I reconverted. I reconverted mm. to being a Christian by actually knowing who Christ was, by understanding him, by entering into a relationship with who he actually was instead of this image that I had formed for the first 19 years of my life. Mm. And I had some and major miracles happen to me too, like some yeah. real miracles. And that's so good to hear that's someone cool. say that, to say, you know, how many people that do we all know and how many people, how many of you listening right now know somebody or are that person that has walked in faith for decades and 
still feels like you don't know Christ truly. And um, how amazing that you had that experience that you get to kind of relearn who Christ was. Um, and then it's not, it's not like this matter of becoming like, okay, now I know Christ and I'm good. Like I know who he is and I'm, I'm set. It's this matter of continuously learning who Christ is. Um, so if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know Christ, it's like, don't worry. Like it's, it's a, it's an everyday thing, you know, continually learn. When they told me they're like, I don't know who God, I was like, good. <laughs> yes. That, that sounds about right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. You're, yeah. You're more it's right than people the people. Come are... with firm definitions. That's when I start getting scared. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what's, what's the secret that you have that I don't have? Yeah. Um, you figure out. Yeah. So, no, I, but Marty, yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I think you said that so nicely because um it's it's more so for me it's the the journey it's a journey of becoming is language that i like to use the our faith journey it's it's this journey of becoming and we never quite arrive and uh i was thinking about this last night because i still uh believe it or not i still lead a small group for the church that i uh, resigned from and we're reading diana butler bass's book you remember when we had her on yeah mm -hmm. yeah that was a lot of fun and we, and we were talking about jesus is the way uh, last night, like, what does it mean to say Jesus is the way? And, um, it's, it's for her, she was talking less about exclusive thing. Like this is meant to exclude people, but more so as an invitation. And she was talking about Jesus, the way of Jesus as the journey, like Jesus is the way Jesus is the journey. And the journey is what it's all about. Uh, it's it's not this place we arrive and then we're good, but rather it's this journey of becoming uh, for, mm -hmm. I guess, as long as we're alive and then maybe even more later. I don't know. I don't know what happens when I die, but at least for here and now, that journey of becoming is huge. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Well, and so, Father Nebo, so you are probably, well, probably not probably, you are the first person that we've had on the podcast before um that would classify themselves as orthodox i don't think we've ever had somebody on the show before um in that area of faith and so for us this is a real joy i mean for me like not to sound like my grandma she likes to say this is such a treat but like <laughs> it really is like to to get to know um this aspect of the faith that i think so much of us that have you know whether you are listening and you've like you've swam in like the evangelical circles and you still are, or you've gone through deconstruction and you're kind of not really sure where you fit, or like you kind of are like, I don't really know where I'm at right now. Like this is an element of the faith that I think has like in in many ways has kind of um weathered the storm of a lot of that aspect of sort of like I'm gonna deconstruct my faith and you know. People don't know G and so I'd love to just hear from you. Um, how did you like what what is it that I guess the best question I'll ask is what is beautiful about orthodoxy to you? And um, not necessarily what makes it different, because I don't know that we need to compare and contrast, but just sure. what's beautiful about orthodoxy to you? Maybe talk about the history a little bit, um, give us some feelings there. And I know you're very smart because I went to school with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marty. Yeah, no man. Pressure. No pressure, Josh. You feel <laughs> pressure? Because I feel pressure. <laughs> yeah, now you you are the expert on that's it. That's yeah. what I'm told. 
Yeah. <laughs> if Marty says it, it has to be true. It is yep. true. Whatever Marty um, says is true. It's in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, you know what's 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 beautiful about orthodoxy, and this is obviously our, our take on it, is that it's the fullness of the faith. It's the whole pie. You know, when I when I when I talk about you know other Christian faiths, I ask you know a question of myself, and I think that we should all ask this as well: is how much are we getting of the history of Christianity and what it has to offer? If your church started, you know, Billy Bob's Hill of the church of you know Billy Bob's Church of the Hill in 1952, how much of Christ are you getting? Right. Whereas in orthodoxy, we have proclaimed the apostolic faith since the time of the apostles. Right. And so in, in when Christianity began, it began obviously in Jerusalem. And then the first place the Christians were called Christians was in Antioch. And then obviously spread to the whole Mediterranean world, including Greece and Rome. And it even went further than that. Right. To India, to Africa, to Ireland. Right. Christianity went to the whole known world, really, at that point. And those apostles were the apostles of Christ. And so one of the main places that they went to was Greece, right? Two of the epistles that we have in the, in the New Testament are to Corinth and to Thessalonica, which are in Greece. And so you can actually go on a pilgrimage to all the sites that St. Paul preached in Greece. And they built churches on every single one of those sites, so people have been proclaiming the message of St. Paul since St. Paul. There's a great um, story in, um, in um, outside of Antioch where there was an evangelical Protestant who went there to preach to these people. And he was through a Bedouin. He was translating and he um, was telling them about Jesus. And the, the young Bedouin was translating to these locals there. And they said, oh, we already know about him. And he said, oh, well, who, who came and told you guys? Was it Joel Osteen? Was it, you know, Benny Hill? Is it who, who came and told you guys about Jesus? And, they, and he went back, the young boy went back and they asked him and they said, it, his name was Paul. Right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. Uh, These people yeah. have been proclaiming Christ since St. Paul. That was who brought them. Christ <laughs> was St. Paul. So... That's, that's, I think, one of the most beautiful things about orthodoxy, you know, um, theological thoughts that many um, of our sister, you know, churches and traditions battle with, you know, the Orthodox Church faced in the first centuries, you know, we already have theological explanations and arguments and thoughts on anything you can name, right? We also obviously, um, when the church split in 1054, right, with the Great Schism, and the Eastern Church split from the Western Church, the Eastern Church maintained a lot of the theology and the original teachings that, unfortunately, the Western Church separated from. And the focus, I think, is really the other big difference, that what we focus on more than I would say even in the Catholic Church is um, the resurrection, the joy, the, the blessings of, of that particular feast, instead of focusing on sin and guilt and submission, right? So more of the, the, the rejoicing and the freedom that, that Christ gives us as well. I think those are some of the highlights. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's, that's super helpful. And I think too, just for clarity purposes, in case listeners have never heard of, you know, 
Greek Orthodox or whatever before, when you're talking about orthodoxy, you're not using it the same way that evangelicals use it. You're as like, oh, this is what it means to be orthodox in the evangelical faith. Like if you're outside of our beliefs, then you're a heretic. You're not orthodox. Right. Greek Orthodox is different than what many of our listeners have grown up hearing. Like, so I, I just thought that distinction was maybe helpful to. Absolutely. So, so just a small historical note, the, the, the difference between the Catholic church and the Orthodox church is, you know, obviously the schism, but it was, it was distinction of terms based on the fact of the schism. So they had to pick sides in order to pick which side you were, they had to have a term. And so in the Rome, they picked the term Catholic, according to all. And then in the Eastern half of the church, they picked the word Orthodox, which means correct faith. And so that was the church until Martin Luther, right? You were either part of the Orthodox camp. So the people who believed in the correct faith, because, you know, the Catholics went wrong, right? They, they, they don't know what they're doing. They, they split from the church, right? Or, you know, you were the church according to all the Catholic church or the Roman Catholic church, right? And so that was, these were distinctions and terms that never existed in the first 1000 year of the church because the whole church was according to all and the whole church was orthodox. And so these terms were interchangeable. And then later on, because of the, the, the schism and the split in between the two major churches, the two major major sides of, of one Christian church, they chose these terms as a way of separating each other out. Even things like doing your cross differently, right? Became a way of separating what team are you on, right? It's like wearing your colors, right? These, these are ways of distinguishing what kind of Christian you were. And then obviously with the Protestant Reformation and then everything afterwards, these terms have taken on whole new meanings. And so the, when I say Orthodox Church, what I mean is what people classically associate with the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Serbian Orthodox Church. These are all the churches that existed in the Eastern part of the Roman Empire and that have continued to this day with the same faith not changing the theology of the church, not changing the creed, not changing um, the the essence and the core uh, teachings of uh, the first, you know, several hundred years of the church. Hmm. Can I so can I ask like a really perhaps stupid follow up question to that? So like sure. you you just listed a, a bunch of different um, like Orthodox you know Orthodox Church, Serbian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, also, I, I've I've heard of or people use the phrase Eastern Orthodox as well. So mm-hmm. like, are all of those distinct? Are they more descriptors? Like this is just Orthodox people who happen to be from Russia or who happen to be from Serbia? Or like, what is the, is there like differences theologically between those? Like, what's the, what's the deal there? Yeah, there, there, there aren't differences theologically. We believe in the same tenets. We proclaim the same creed. We have the same theology of the Trinity, for example, the same theology of Christ, for example. The difference really ends up being more stylistic and language-based, right? What language are you speaking? There's also a historical reality, right? These particular churches, when they came to the United States, came from those countries. And those peoples, for example, the Russian peoples would bring their priests with them. And so they would establish a Russian Orthodox Church because that's what they had in Russia. And then they would just set one up in San Jose, California, right? And then the Greeks, you know, when they went to Tarpon Springs, they set up a Greek Orthodox church because that was the church that they came from. And then so they set it up here. There's also some historical context to be thought in that, you know, the church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica grew, right? And so eventually it took more and more area and eventually it became the whole country of Greece was Christian, right? And then eventually historically, 
those though the, the Roman Empire fell in 1453 and then all these lands became separated right and then they got their own borders with their own governments and then everything split and became more uh, dichotomized right and their own specific particular countries right and so those those churches that existed in those places became more local right and more centrified around the borders of that country but in terms of faith and practice it's 90 faith is 100% practice is like 97 95% the same there are some stylistic differences language being number one but beyond that that's pretty much the same sweet so I'm going to ask also what may be considered a dorky question, um, but uh, and and this might get too into the weeds and on, on some stuff that we don't maybe need to talk about. But I just was thought of it. Um, so in amongst the Great Schism, there became these two separate entities, these two separate churches. And I, you know, I remember you know being a bit of a, like a history nerd myself. There's obviously there became two popes at that point, and like they were like, well, one's not the like this one's not legitimate. This one is, and it was this big huge deal. Um, that was I guess what it, yeah, <laughs> right, yep, yeah, right. So I guess what I'm curious about is what was what was the element of faith that caused them to say we can't do this. Like we're, we're splitting, we're doing our own thing. And then beyond that, um, how does like, so how much of it, like, and I'm sure that you'll probably say all of it, but that's fine. But how much of what, where the Orthodox church was in 1054, how much of that belief structure is in place today in 2021 in your church, as far as like faith and practice is concerned, like how much of that looks the same i mean realizing that technologic technology has changed that kind of thing has been different but like what was the piece that caused that big split and then how much of what you do today in your day-to-day -day job is very similar or identical to what was happening then so in terms of when you walk into an orthodox church you're going back to the 600s the liturgy is almost exactly the same as it was done in the fifth century so you're getting Christianity as it was in its, one of its most ancient forms. The kernel of the liturgy is the mystical supper as it was done by the apostles in the book of Acts, right? So the, 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 the kernel, and then obviously that kernel grew into something a lot bigger with a lot more pageantry as the empire grew, right? And Christianity became legal. Once Constantine, the emperor, declared Christianity illegal, then it was off, off to the races and Christianity grew and the liturgy developed, right? So, you know, in terms of keeping things the same, that's one of our main jokes, right? Is how many Orthodox people would it take to change a light bulb? The response is change. <laughs> Why would we change? <laughs> Why do we change the light bulb? Um, but, you know, the theological difference, one of the main differences between the East and West from the beginning was the focus on original sin. In the East, there was no focus on original sin. And there's a great book by Father John Romanidis about ancestral sin and the history of this particular topic. It's phenomenal. Josh totally up your alley, very theological um, and extremely mind-blowing. Um, but basically, Father John's point is that in the West, you know, they focused on this and then led to really all the differences between the East and the West theologically and including a lot of the issues that the Protestant Reformation had as well, theologically with the Catholic Church. This focus on original sin and inherited sin 
And what, I mean, that's just a hop and a skip away from predestination, right? And so if you cut that out, well then what do you have left? Well, you have a lot more left because if we're not considering the inherited sin that we have of our ancestors and Adam and Eve and the whole fall, you know, then there's a whole different worldview that you can have and, and different understanding of how sin and separation from God and each other works. So that's a big one theologically. And then obviously theologically, the big issue was filioque, which is a phrase that was added into the creed, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. The creed was finished in, you know, 325 and 355 with the first and the second ecumenical councils. And that was the creed in the church as it existed up until around the eight, six to eight hundreds. And in the six to eight hundreds, there was an ancient heresy called Arianism. This guy, Arius, who basically, in a very, very short way to explain it, he proclaimed that Christ was not God. He couldn't figure out how God, Christ was God, right? And so to fight this particular heresy in Spain in the sixth to eighth centuries, the, the Spaniards added a phrase into the creed saying that the Holy Spirit not only proceeded from the Father, it also proceeds from the Son. And in Latin, that phrase is filioque, and the Son. And so what they did was, by adding that, they, they uplifted Christ to downplay this heresy, which said that Christ wasn't God. So their point was, oh, Christ is so much God that he also proceeds the Holy Spirit. Well, if that was just a local problem handled by a local group of people, okay, right? We can kind of all live with some local differences, right? But what happened was that particular theology made its way to Rome, and it was officially put into the creed at the Vatican, which had never been done before without conciliar, without conciliarity. So any changes to the creed, any official changes to the theology of the church was supposed to be done in ecumenical council with all the churches getting together. And Rome did not know to do that. And so because they didn't do that in the 800s, they started having major issues with the eastern part of the church, including Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria. These are the major centers, what were called the patriarchates of the eastern church. And because they added this particular phrase, they um, were told, guys, don't do that, or there's going to be some major issues. And they basically said, so sad, too bad. And they, they, they excommunicated the eastern part of the church by laying a bull of excommunication on the altar at Constantinople. And then Constantinople excommunicated Rome, you know, because we are third graders fighting in, in the recess parking lot, you know. And, you know, if you're going to slap me, I'm going to slap you. And, uh, you know, all that good stuff, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, Old Testament stuff. But anyways, obviously, I'm making something that's incredibly complex, very simple and a little funny. But the bottom line is that we split over that particular idea, but also way of life. More articles have been written at that period about celibacy of clergy and beards than you will ever want to read in your lifetime. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, these are major issues for people, right? The, the external aspects of the faith were major issues. Um, so there were, there were those external factors, but then there were the internal factors of the filioque and its addition to the creed and what it did to the Trinity by inverting the Holy Trinity and how it was classically understood and theologically proclaimed for a thousand years. Yeah, man, I'm messaging Marty here privately and like, I'm like, dude, I'm nerding out so hardcore right now. <laughs> it's so cool. I'm so glad that you're here uh, sharing with us. Because uh, the when I first encountered the idea that, hey, 
there's another way to think about this idea called sin that isn't original sin. It was introduced to me like, hey, there's this whole group of Christians that think about this differently. And I was never told that growing up. I was just taught this is what Christians have always thought forever. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, that's just not factual, you no. know? And I've been, especially in a, an episode that Marty and I recorded recently, um, I slipped up in my language and I, I said, most Christians, blah, blah, blah. You know, I forgot exactly what I said. And the guy we were interviewing, Gabe, stopped me and he was like, hey, Josh, not to, you know, be a dick, but most Christians don't believe that. You're using the phrase most Christians within your Western context. And what you mean is, most evangelical fundamentalist Christians believe this, but from a world perspective, that's a minority group. Yeah. And so you can't say most Christians believe this. And so that I remember that discovery was like mind blowing to me. And I was like, Whoa, the Christian faith is so much bigger, so much more beautiful, diverse, broad, uh, than I was led to believe. And like, that was good news to me. Yeah. And so that's when I was talking to Marty earlier and he was like, Hey, I, I have my friend. Um, he's a, a Greek Orthodox priest. Can we bring him on the show? I was like, yes, please. I would like nothing more. <laughs> Me too, man. Yeah. So thank I you. Really for like, yeah. I really like this idea of rethinking faith. You know, one of the things that, that really changed my life in rethinking faith is understanding the incarnation to its fullest extent. Please the go things- there. Yeah, one of the things that that you know, for example, we we you know always get into conversations with people with is about iconography, for example, right? And I I, I explain to people that we don't worship the icons, we worship God, right? But we offer veneration to the icons, just like we would offer veneration, right, to anybody that we're in love with or in a relationship with, right? We have relationships with these saints, with these events from the life of Christ. And so because we have love for Christ, because we have love for these saints, we offer the veneration. But, you know, in the Seventh Ecumenical Council is when they really dealt with this, because there was this whole period in the church, in the history of the church, for about 250 years, where they were back and forth on, is it idolatry? Is it not idolatry? And at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, they proclaimed it to be not idolatry for the final time. And um, basically what they did was they expounded on the incarnation where they said that if Christ can, if God can empty himself of his godhood, which is called kenosis, right? He can empty himself as his godhood and he can enhypostasize, right? The fancy word, right? The, The hypostases of the divinity and the hypostases of the humanity into one person, Jesus of Nazareth right? If the created clay that God created of Adam can completely contain the uncontainable God, why can't a piece of wood? It doesn't make any sense. If the piece of wood is too limited, what makes us so much better? Because we're in the image and likeness of God? That's one part of it, right? But that image and likeness was never separated from the fact that we are created, we are still part of creation, as Genesis very clearly says, right? And so that means that we have in our essence as human beings, this label of being created. And so the created can now contain 
the creator. And so that's why bread and wine can contain the body and the blood of Christ, even after his death and his resurrection. So, okay, so the bread, so some people say, oh, okay, well, that's communion. Well, what's the difference, right? This, this bread and this wine are completely human constructs, right? That we create from our own hands. And so why can't a piece of wood, what's the, how is the wood lesser than the bread and the wine, right? Now, there's obviously a lot more to be said about this and sacramental theology aside, just a basic understanding that, you know, this, this incarnational concept is extremely important in orthodoxy and is the centerpiece of everything that we do. Yeah, man. And so as you were talking about icons and uh, I started thinking about people that are like, you know, you're like, you're, I don't know, you're, you're typically evangelical Christian who has like a Jesus fish sticker on their car um, or they have, they wear a cross necklace um, or their church has a cross at the big, at the front of the room, a huge cross at the front of the room. And, you know, so like we evangelicals would say, oh my gosh, like there's, there's all these icons and they must be worshiping those things. Well, what about what about your cross necklace and what about your uh what about your cross that hangs up in your in your church all those things are the same thing and you understand that you're not worshiping your necklace or the cross right. in front of the room like it makes sense to you you get that um so i think that there's there's been a lot of without them anyone even realizing it the idea of icon coming into the church not as worship but as something that we are aware of that it's in remembrance of right like when you know i just recently did a communion liturgy or as a part of a communion liturgy and you know that i was asked to pray over the cup and my prayer was very short but all it was was very simple god thank you for this symbol of remembrance that we have for you allowing your son to shed his blood on the cross for our sin. And the idea that we have that as an icon and that we understand the difference like that it's not, we're not worshiping the cup. We're not worshiping the cross. We're not, we're not worshiping any of those things that we can hold in our hands tangibly, but they bring us to that different place of remembrance. Um, and I, and I, and it's different than just saying like, oh yeah, now I remember. Okay, good. So now I can move on. It's not just memory remembrance. It's that it's that different element of worship remembrance that 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 idea of that in remembering we are consistently worshiping again so i guess i'm saying all that to say the evangelicals that are confused about icons need only to walk into their own worship centers and say that in their own worship centers there are icons there that are a part of their faith and are a part of how they worship all the time. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me pastorally, when I see people reacting to that, and you, you I'm sure you guys have seen this as ministry as, as well, but like, you know, our tradition as priests, like we really do everything, right? In your traditions, you have like 500 staff people to handle what one Orthodox priest would do. And I'm not, I'm not joking. Like we literally do everything. It's a completely different world. And so when it comes to pastoring people, you really get to know the human condition. And when I see people react to, to these things, I always want to ask them, what's really going on? 
because you're not really mad about a piece of wood and some paint. Like, that's really not what's happening here. Like somebody hurt you or some image of the church destroyed you or hurt you or you're in pain about something or you're upset about what some pastor or some priest did to you or it's it's almost never the actual theology or the actual piece of wood or the image. It's something else that happened to these people. And I think in ministry, we really miss the mark to pastor to people by not asking them those kinds of questions. Cause I think that's usually the case almost always. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I, uh, listeners, you couldn't see this happen, but as you started talking about icons, I got super excited and typically I have these, they hang up in my office above my desk here, uh, but they're in the other room because, uh, I'm painting. And so the office is being painted. I take them down, but I have a few icons that I've I mean, I really love, this is one of my favorites. Uh, this is a, if I'm correct, this is a Russian Orthodox icon and yeah. it's a painting of the Trinity. Um, and I, I really like that one. And then I have these two here as well, which I think, I mean, you could correct me, but um, are these Greek Orthodox icons? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think Just they're in, in pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, my friend, uh, so my good friend, Brandon, uh, Marty knows Brandon, uh, Brandon's Korean but he married uh, a Greek woman named Christina. And so this, you know, recently when they got married, I got to attend a Greek Orthodox wedding in a Greek Orthodox church is my first time being there. And it was beautiful. And these kind of things were, were everywhere. Um, and, and I think the first time I started to understand icons, I was actually listening to uh, Richard Rohr are you familiar with him? He's like a Franciscan monk. I'm not, sorry. Okay, no, no worries. So he's a Franciscan monk um, and he gets hated on by people a lot uh, in the evangelical world. But he talks about um, the incarnation and how within the incarnation, you have this, what he calls the scandal of the particular, the universal, like God, the creator becoming like uh, kenosis is how I've, I've always said it, but I noticed you said it differently, which you probably know how to say it right. And I don't. Uh, yeah. So, but in the incarnation, the universal becomes the particular it's, it's a scandal of, you know, the particular he calls it. And so um, he says, then what you have to do is be able to take that. And then where it's true in one place, it's true everywhere. So we can say in a very real way that within communion, within the communion elements, God is present within the bread and the cup in a very real way, the same way God was present within the person of Jesus. And then the same way God is present within this piece of wood <laughs> or right. this icon. Yeah. And so that was, that was really helpful for me. But um, one, one question I wanted to ask you about the incarnation um, is just something that I, I learned or, or picked up on recently. And I, it really blew my mind and it was insanely helpful for me. Um, and so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but basically I, I was reading and um, somebody was talking about the Eastern Orthodox church and how for them, when it comes to atonement, um, the incarnation plays a much bigger role in the understanding of atonement than it does within the Protestant faith tradition. And they were talking about um, how it's actually in the incarnation that the quote unquote, the magic 
happens, whatever bridge needed to be healed between God and humanity actually happened in, in the incarnation, that God becoming human or the Christ becoming human in the person of Jesus, something happened there that was significant and important that often gets overlooked in the Protestant faith tradition where we automatically jump to the cross and say, oh, well, you know, we'll go with penal substitutionary atonement. Like we're all bad, evil, and God had to kill somebody. Luckily he killed Jesus who was perfect and that atoned for everybody's sins. Um, whereas perhaps in a different tradition, we might be able to talk about the incarnation as something that, um, I don't know if atonement's the right word, but the incarnation has a higher level of um, importance. Does that make sense? Am I off my rocker? It does. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly the, the trajectory of, you know, for example, penal substitutionary atonement and all the other various atonements that happen in, in the, um, what I would say, the Protestant world. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not super well read on the exact understandings of all that. Okay. But one of the things that I always think about, it just on a basic historical timeline, Right, and I'm really big into history. So I like to study how the development of history happened when it comes to theological progression. Oh, for sure. The, the, the question mark that I always have with penal substitutionary atonement is, what if original sin wasn't a factor? Because if original sin wasn't a factor, I really doubt that they would have jumped to that. That, that, that the anxiety and the angst that these theologians had to atone for these sins and it's also, forgive me, but it's so Catholic, you know, like it's so Western church, you know, to, to atone for these sins. And orthodoxy, right, the classic states is if you were to go to somebody who was orthodox and they knew at all what they were talking about and you went to them and say, are you saved? They would be so confused. Because in orthodoxy, we understand that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. There's this Western concept, you know, and again, we're an Eastern church. And so our understanding of things is very different than the Western world. And in the Western world, it's very dichotomistic. It's you're either saved or you're not. You're good or you're bad. It's black or it's white. In orthodoxy, it's everything. You're both good and bad. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. <laughs> it's everything and that's what i said you know in the beginning like the thing that i love about orthodoxy is that the fullness of it it's everything you have to deal with everything you can't cherry pick the verses that you like and throw out the verses that you don't like you can't start a church based on one verse you can't start a, a church based on one fundamental teaching of scripture you know you have to proclaim the fullness of the faith of the apostles on the time of the apostles forevermore and so, um, you know, our understanding of salvation, therefore, is probably very different than Western, Western churches, because our understanding of salvation is, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with a man, a person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is also the only begotten son of God. And so we need the human part, because God only knows I'm not the incarnated one, <laughs> right? We need him to be incarnated, because I need somebody to understand what the heck I'm going through as a human. But we also need the God part because I can't save myself, right? And so we need both. If I'm only focusing on one and not focusing on the other, well, then something in my salvation is being messed with, right? And I always tell people, whenever they talk about anything theological, I always ask them, how does that impact our salvation, right? So if atonement is something as simple as saying, I'm saved, well, forgive me, but that's too simple. 
and it's not the fullness of what the scriptures has to say. It's cheap. Honestly, it's cheap. If I just have to say it, that's all I had to do. I don't remember Christ doing that. <laughs> I remember him doing a lot more than that, <laughs> you know? So um, the reality is that when it comes to salvation, you know, St. Maximus the Confessor, who is um, a sixth century church father in the Orthodox Church, an incredible theologian, literally an amazing theologian, somebody that will blow anybody's mind who's even at all well versed in theology. Um, he had this beautiful image. He said, being in heaven is being so close to God that we can embrace him. And scripturally, we know that, right, from Lazarus and the rich man, right? Being in heaven is being so close that we can embrace and being in Abraham's embrace, right? And being in hell is being so far away from God that we can't even feel his presence. So what is this showing us? It's showing us relationship. Everything is based on how we know this person. If you spend 80 years of your life never knowing God, never having any relationship with him, not doing anything that would even mimic what we would call Christian behavior, right? Well, we, we don't know, right? Because God in the end is going to judge us all, right? But our soul has a propensity to be in the relationships that we have it in in this life. And the, and the opposite is true, that if we, if we get close to God and we spend our life getting close to God, especially on purpose, and especially in knowing him on a deeper, more intimate level, well, then our soul will reciprocate that because we are body and soul, right? And so... It's really all about relationship in orthodoxy. Every, every aspect of our theology is just another nuance. Every aspect of what we do in the church is just another nuance of explaining relationship. It's a way of living out our life as Christ directed us. People talk about something like lighting a candle, right? Why do I got to light a candle, right? Well, St. Paul and the original Christian church, when they met at night, they went in the dark of night. And they went with lanterns and they would put their lanterns in a little alcove and then they would go to the upper room and one of the apostles would come by and he would share the message of Jesus Christ and break the bread and bless the wine and that was the agape meal, right? Well, then some people would die, right? Old age, disease, who knows, right? It was the first century. And so these people, the original Christians, all knew Christ in some capacity. And they, so they saw this man who they knew die, and then they saw him resurrect from the dead. This is a completely out-of-world experience, okay? Like, this has a life-changing experience. And so here they are with their Uncle Tom, who just passed away, and they don't know what to do with this guy. Is he going to resurrect from the dead? Nobody knows, right? Christ died. He resurrected from the dead. What are we going to do with Uncle Tom, right? Well, what they did was, they would bring the lantern of that person and still put it on the spot that they put it on as a remembrance that they are not dead. And St. John and the Gospel of John is very clear about that, right? That Christ is Lord of the living, not of the dead. And so if we really believe in the resurrection, then of course we're going to light the candle for this person that existed before us and even for us, right? And that's from the Old Testament, even, right? And we are obviously Christians. Our continuation of the Old Testament church, right? And so um, there's there's all kinds of things to talk about when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as you were talking earlier about um, understanding different aspects of between Western and East, Eastern, um, obviously, 
in the Western faith traditions, it's it's not really it, it's 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 about this simplified measure of becoming. You know, I became a Christian on this date, and so now I'm there. I've arrived there. There are other other aspects, other denominations that have things more that are like, I became a Christian on this date. Then I was baptized in the Holy Spirit on this date, or I had my baptism on this date, or I had my first Holy Communion on this date, or something like that. But it sort of is almost it's it's almost so Americanized we can we can taste it in this element of I like there are these goals to attain and you attain them and then you are finished with it and you no longer have to think about it. And so that's as you were talking that was something I was thinking about. Um, but you, you mentioned hell a few moments ago, and I love to go there, Be- not yeah. go to hell, but I want to talk about <laughs> the topic. Marty, you heard it here first. Marty specifically said, I would love to go to hell. So the real question. Perhaps you're already yeah, there. Maybe. I don't know. No, probably not. Not yet. Anyway. 695 um, in Baltimore is hell. Yeah. So the question that I think begs the asking as you were talking about it, if original sin isn't a part of orthodoxy and faith, then what is hell? Like I said, St. Maximus's image is really the, the perfect one, which is that it's being as far away from God as possible, right? Or even this idea of that his love would feel like a burning fire because we've lived our whole life away from him. Right, and so somebody who loves us that we don't want to be around, if they show that love, well, they're like, "Ew, get away from me!" Right? That that love is like a searing fire to you. Right? There's a great image from uh, I think Saint Isaac the Syrian. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this one up. I can't remember the source right now, but I'm pretty sure it was Saint Isaac the Syrian, where he said that in hell there's gonna be this long table, and you can only eat the meal that's in front of you with an extremely long fork that reaches to the other end of the table. And so everyone's trying to figure out how to eat their own meal with this extremely long fork, and they can't, and so they starve. In heaven, it's this long table, and everyone's got the fork, but instead of trying to eat for yourself, you're feeding the person across from you, right? It's, it's really, you know, when it comes to heaven and hell, it really is about relationship. And, and that's what God is going to judge us by, right? This judgment that God is going to come by, he's going to show us and ask us, what did you do? Right, the scriptures are clear about that, right? What did you do? Did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? What'd you do? What happened, <laughs> right? And everything that we've done is going to be born in front of us. The truth will be told. And so, right, there will be that judgment. But at the same time, we know that God is merciful. And so this is the thing about orthodoxy. Hell is everything. It's all of the images. We don't just pick one. We don't cherry pick the ones that we like and leave the ones that we don't like. We have to deal with everything. That's a very difficult thing to do theologically. It's a very diff- difficult thing to do spiritually. It's a very difficult thing to do personally, especially in the West where we're used to just doing the checklist. And that, by the way, that's very Catholic. That's very Catholic, which is so funny when Protestants do it because wasn't well, that the whole point, guys, to get away from that? <laughs> but, uh, you know, just throwing it out there. But um, it is, it's very Western Catholic checklist. I did this, this, and this. Here's my penance. You know, go do the 40 Hail Marys and then move on, right? Like it's, it's very transactional. And orthodoxy, we have some of that stuff. That's a part of our, our life, too, because we were influenced by the West. There's no doubt about it, okay? But in the truth of what orthodoxy is and the theology and what's, and what's supposed to happen, um, it's all about the relationship. When somebody comes to confession or they want to talk to me about their spiritual life, 
I asked, the first question I asked them is, talk to me about your prayer life. Because if you don't know how to talk to God, then there's really nothing we can do here except for that. You can tell me all the things wrong you've done your whole life, and that's beautiful, and that has, has value, obviously, and God forgives us, right, in, in, in the sacrament of confession, and we are, we are offered forgiveness, right? But more importantly, if, if I can't realign you with talking to God, then all the things that have gone wrong are not going to get realigned. And so our goal isn't just cheap grace or, or cheap solutions or simple solutions. Our goal is holistic healing and, and absolute restoration of who you are. And that's on three levels. That's on the anthropos level, who we are as human. That's on the male-female level, Adam and Eve, and their individual fallenness and what happened to their natures as man and, and, and female, man and woman. And then Marty and Josh as individuals, right? So there's three levels that God has opened up to us the way of salvation, right? And to heal, to restore the image of God that's in us and his likeness. And so that's the goal in orthodoxy is complete restoration, complete healing to be realigned with this person. And it all has to do with the relationship. That's why that question of what's your prayer life like is so important because if you don't have that relationship, well, then, you know, I can give you all kinds of answers, but if you don't know how to pray, then those answers aren't really going to go anywhere. They're not going to be in, you know, rooted in anything. And so when it comes to question of hell, it's really a question of where are you? Just like when Adam fell, right? The first question of God was not, why did you do that? It was, where are you? He's trying to restore the relationship. He's not trying to punish. He's trying to figure out what happened. And so we, we live in that world where we try to figure out what happened because we're not here to condemn you. We're here to show you what happened and to find a way back, which is what Christ did. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're, 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 you're whatever is healed, go and sin no more, <laughs> right? We're going to heal you and then figure out a way to not sin anymore. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a picture of a to use legal language because that's what us good Western Protestant Christians do. It's it's restorative justice in compared to retributive justice, and that's that's huge. And so for me, it's like, I mean, at least in my mind, I I can make this connection. But within the the within the Orthodox Church, um, is there room for uh some sort of patristic universalism or ultimate reconciliation um or is that not necessarily something that that is made space for because you know does god still allow those who uh you know choose not to reciprocate love um you know maybe that that space hell is is reserved for those people and they experience the love of god as as painful and searing like you were talking about um but is is there a way that uh perhaps somebody who is experiencing the love of god as painful and searing can somehow within that state whatever that means um repent and turn back towards god like so is I don't know how to ask it because I'm not asking are Orthodox people universalist. I'm, I'm trying to ask, is there room for ultimate reconciliation of all things, of all creatures back to God within the Orthodox understanding of faith? 
Like, is that something that could be possible? So that was declared a heresy in the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Okay. <laughs> See, I'm a fucking heretic no, everywhere, Marty. That's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's called apocatastasis. And uh, it's it's this idea of universal salvation where every, everyone gets everyone gets out of the get out of jail free card, right? And it was something that was considered very seriously, and a lot of theologians have it in their theology. Uh, and that's one of the you know the interesting things about orthodoxy is that because of this both and and because of this idea that kind of everything's on the table, nothing's off the table. You know, even heresies we rehash over and over again. You know, and we keep talking about things even like universal salvation. Um, you know, the reality, though, is that, you know, this, this is why the both end is so important, because we believe in Christ being the just judge, because he is, and the most merciful one, because he is. And when you really try to figure that out, then you're just starting your journey as a Christian, and you're just starting your journey as a theologian, because, you know, the theologian, as Evagrius of Pontus, who was a heretic, first said, and, you know, he wasn't the, the only one, but I, I'll attribute it to him because he was the first person to say it. Uh, he was a heretic, but a very smart man. He said, a theologian is someone who prays. And someone who prays is a theologian. So it's all about knowing God, right? That's what it's all about. If it's not about that, then what's the point, right? Um, I think that in terms of the patristical record, there's this thing called the mind of the fathers, and so they do agree on a lot of things and they do have a certain mindset that they have in regards to theology and certain aspects of faith. But, you know, I always tell people in terms of like salvation and stuff, the scriptures have over a dozen references the kingdom of God is like. So if there's a dozen references of the kingdom of God is like, why are we looking for only one example? This doesn't make any, any sense scripturally. My three favorite that I like to point out is, the kingdom of God is like 10 virgins. I'm not a virgin and I don't multiply in 10. Nice. <laughs> right? The kingdom of God is like a mansion. The kingdom of God is like a vineyard. What do these three things have in common? And see, this is the thing in the Protestant world where, you know, when we cherry pick these scriptures, then it's really hard to actually connect to them. And people get lost. And they feel spiritually depleted because you're only looking at one section of the New Testament, much less the Old Testament and everything else combined. And so, you know, all three of those, and we can do a whole Bible study on this, and I just did one recently on this, um, was they, they explained relationship in a different way. You know, and this is uh, not just me saying that, right? It's the, the fathers. There's this mind of the fathers. You have these exegetical, you know, when we talk about the scriptures, these guys memorized the scriptures. They knew it by heart, which was incredible because the scriptures didn't exist as a book until the 1600s. So they would have had to have memorized it from somebody else who had memorized it, from somebody else who had memorized it, going all the way back to the apostles themselves who wrote it. And when we talk about tradition, right, the scriptures were born out of tradition. There was no scriptures for 50 years of the church. So what do they do? They lived the gospel. They knew the gospel. They were the gospel until somebody wrote it down. And then when somebody wrote it down, then people obviously had this revelation from the mouths of the apostles themselves about the good news of Jesus Christ. And then the books and manuscripts and everything came later. 
But I think a lot of these people have this image of the Bible floating down from the sky in book form. There was no book, there was no book Bible until Gutenberg, right? Until the 1600s. Before that, it was a bunch of manuscripts that you were lucky if you had them all in one place. Like that usually didn't happen. And so the bottom line is that, you know, when it comes to, you know, these ideas of universality and particularity and orthodoxy, you have to deal with all of it. You can't pick one over the other. You can't just have one in the room and leave the other one out of the room. You have to deal with both of them at the same time. And it's a completely different way of thinking. It's very hard. It's, it's mind numbing. <laughs> and it's frustrating because you just want that clean cut answer, which is so Western of us. We just want to have the answer and move on. But that's not the reality. It's not the reality of life, much less the reality of faith, much less the reality of Christianity and what it really is. Yeah. Yeah, and that, man, it's it's just this. So what you're talking about is, is calling, like is, is uh, reminding me of just something that I experienced more recently within my faith journey. Um, I mean, I've talked about it on the show before, but you keep coming back to this idea of relationship. And within the church world that I grew up in, the evangelical church, uh, they go on and on and on about, oh, it's not a, rela- a religion, it's a relationship with Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But then they don't actually back it up with anything. It just becomes like a silly phrase that they say. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, but I think that oftentimes the simple things are the most complex and the most profound. But we have to go on a journey to realize that the simple things we've been told actually are the are the the most complex. And so, uh, contemplative practice and prayer, quite literally, has saved my faith. Without experiencing those things, I would not be a Christian today. But it is through relationship, like you're talking about, through contemplative practice and prayer, uh, that I have come to know God um, in a much deeper and profound way than I did before. And a helpful metaphor would be like this. I love the Washington Capitals, my favorite hockey team. And the captain of that team is Alexander Ovechkin. I know a whole lot about Alex Ovechkin. You know, I know his wife, his, who his kids are. I know about his career. I could read a biography about him, an autobiography about him, learn all these facts about Alex Ovechkin. But if I never meet Alex Ovechkin and hang out with Alex Ovechkin and become Alex Ovechkin's friend, then I can only know him intellectually but not here. And listeners, I'm pointing to my heart. I can't know him, even though I know a lot about him. And for me, that was the thing that shifted my faith profoundly. I knew a whole hell of a lot about God, the same way that I know a whole lot about Alex Ovechkin. But I didn't know God experientially. And it wasn't until I engaged in contemplative practice and prayer that I started to know God in a way that I never have encountered before. And it was a way that didn't exist just in my mind, but actually existed in my heart, in the core of who I was. Some people call that our soul. Uh, that changed everything for me. And it seemed, and, and so when you talk about relationship as such, like you keep bringing that up, this relationship, 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 that keeps coming up, this whole conversation as like a core 
proponent or aspect of what it means to be orthodox it's like well dude like maybe my problem is that i was born into a southern baptist evangelical church and maybe i'm better fitted for these orthodox homies that's who i gotta go start hanging out with (laughs) (laughs) i don't don't know that that was a lot and i didn't really ask a question i'm just like we'd be happy to have you and one of the interesting things about orthodoxy too is that we don't proselytize so we don't we don't we don't go get souls for jesus Uh, thank you thank you for that (laughs) we live our life and if people find it something that they want to join then they can join too um but but you know one of the things that i tell people is you know in creation god created nothing and then he created something to share his love right the most basic understanding of that is to share his love he could have just stopped there just created space and be done. He didn't have to do anything else, but he didn't. Then he created Earth. And of all the planets in the world, right? Mercury is, you know, hot. Neptune is cold, right? In this particular planet, he created these mountains and valleys and forests and rivers and lakes and oceans, right? To make his life more, his love more imminent, more tangible more intimate he could have just stopped there could have been done but he didn't he then created animate things this is so wondrous animate things animals right to make his love more finite more intimate and if you've never had an animal you know you can only imagine but for those of us who've had animals as pets there is an incredible intimacy that you can establish with pets and God could have just stopped there. I'm done with the animals. That would have been a whole life, billions of lives, right? In life forms. But he didn't. Then he created us. And even with us, it was not good for man to be alone. And he created Eve. And what does that show us? It shows us that can we pray to God in space? Absolutely. Can we pray to God in the mountains and the valleys and the oceans? course can we have a knowledge of god through animals of course but there is no more powerful knowledge of god or love than in another human being and i'll challenge anyone to to prove me wrong on that Yeah. yeah um and so this is really the question what kind of intimacy do you want with god what kind of relationship do you want Because if you want an incredibly intimate one like you have with your loved ones and your friends and your family and your wife and your husband and your children, or do you want one just like the one that you have with your dog or your cat? Or do you want one just like when you go to the forest and you feel this openness? God is present in all those places. And we can encounter him in all those places. But if we want to really get to know him, it's only going to be through another person. And of course, in our faith tradition, it's through Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ. And so through him, we can know God in the most intimate of ways. And this is why that incarnational theology is so important, because he has left us these things, including the bread and the wine and the oil. And I mean, all these sacraments come from the scriptures, guys. It's not like we woke up one day and said, hey, let's do this. Right. They also come out of the tradition of the church, which happened before the scriptures. Christians were doing this from the first centuries. There's texts that prove this. And so... Um, the reality is that that intimacy is the, is really the question. 
That's the question that answers all these questions. What do you really want? Do you want a God that is going to completely empty himself of even his Godhood to come to be in your life, to assume everything, the good and the bad of who you are, all the way to your humanness, your maleness, your femaleness, all this stuff. He will assume all that if you let him. But see, this is the thing about freedom. God is all powerful except for in one thing, freedom. He is limitless in one thing except for one thing, freedom, our freedom. And so this is the thing that in your case, Josh, right? If you're constantly in your mind, well, you're not letting anything in. And God can't break through there because that would break your freedom to be thinking all the time. That's your freedom. You're free to do that. And so by you escaping that thinking all the time and what we call noetic prayer, the noose is where the soul resides in the Orthodox tradition. It's this very complex thing. But anyways, what we call noetic prayer, where it's just encountering the mystery, encountering the other, encountering something beyond us, metaphysics, right? Encountering God. Saint Gregory Palamas, a 13th century father of the Orthodox Church, he, he, his disciples once asked him, where can I find God? One of the most powerful questions ever. And he said, you can find God in the vibrancy of silence. And if you ever go to a perfectly still place, the air will vibrate around you. And that's the presence of God. And so, you know, that's what you're looking for. That's what you're talking about, right? But you have to create that space because if you don't, God won't break you. He won't go past you. He won't dominate over you because that's a totalitarian God. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to believe in that guy. And again, it's, it just, it's just not physically true, right? If he was really totalitarian, then everything would be run in that way. And it's not, it's just not just basic facts of life around us. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think. Yeah, you're hitting it right on the head. Yeah. I'm well, so excited. <laughs> so I think I could speak for Josh and say that um, this has been our favorite episode that we've probably like ever done <laughs> because you've just, and, and Nebo, like when you and I spoke a few weeks ago, it had been a few years since we had spoke. Um, and um, I texted you afterwards that said, I, I, it's been so long since I've felt um, just like you, you have brought Christ to me today in just relationship. And today I think you've brought Christ to us in this conversation and anyone listening to it, uh, whether they, whether they listen to it on Tuesday, June 8th, 2021, or they listen to it 20 years from now or a day from now or 10 days from now, whatever, um, like you're, you've brought Christ to us because you are, um, you have a gift of the Holy Spirit, I truly believe, to bring light and life to people in your, in your presence and in your words. Um, I was going to ask you about what does evangelism look like in the Orthodox Church, but you answered that. So, like you, 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 you had premonition come to and understand. See. <laughs> and, it um, doesn't. What good can come out of Nazareth? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and you said something to you said something earlier that just really spoke to me and I got goosebumps when you said it um, before they had the written gospel, they lived the gospel. 
And before it was written down on paper, the apostles in the early church, they lived the gospel. They lived Christ to those around them. And they were Christ to those around them. And they, um, people got to experience the crucified Christ in the love and relationships of those around them each day in and day out. And um, I, I personally truly believe, I mean, I, I have goosebumps right now. Um, you have brought crucified Christ to us today and to those listening. And um, I'm just so thankful. Um, I'm so thankful and grateful to have you as a friend and um, to have got to have this conversation today. Um, but we, want, we also really want to be respectful of your time um, and of our time as well. <laughs> I want to make sure, because yeah. I know Josh and I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And, yeah, Marty, you made a um, mistake sharing uh, his contact information with me because now he's never going to sleep because I'm just going to bother. Working on, Joshy. Yes, please. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, dance theological circles around each other will be fantastic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, please. Because I've, like, this will sound overly uh like this is an overstatement but i seriously mean it like so friends like myself um who grew up in the protestant tradition and have are currently within this thing that people are calling deconstruction or have gone through it before in the past or whatever like i just want to encourage you go step outside of your tradition and go explore greek orthodoxy and eastern orthodoxy and these different things because you will find, I promise you, you will find the things that you've been asking or these crazy things, you know, that you've been thinking or whatever, you're not the first person to think or ask these questions. It has existed for a really long time. And like, I'm sorry that people have lied to you and said you can't ask those questions or that those questions don't exist, but they have since forever. And that has been insanely freeing for myself to know that the evangelical Christian church in America is not the only Christian people that exist. And our friends like Father Nabo, who uh, so graciously shared their time with us, he's one person, but there's like a shit ton of people like him, like way a lot, like way more than just these, you know, white evangelical Protestants in America. And the Christian faith and tradition is so much bigger and more beautiful than you've been led to believe. And please don't give up. I mean, don't bail out because yeah. one version of the faith that you've been presented with sucks because there's like this Jesus guy for whatever reason, I don't know, is insanely compelling. And uh, I've experienced Christ um, in so many ways since I've stepped out of church ministry, I, I mean, I've experienced Christ at the bar in ways that I didn't know is possible. And that's just one thing, mm -hmm. but there's other Christians out there um, who've been asking these questions who have, you know, been in encountering Christ for a really long time. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to look like what you've been taught. And mm -hmm. it's a really beautiful thing. And so I'm, I'm imploring you don't give up, uh, yeah. because this Jesus guy is kind of cool <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you can find Christ. If you have eyes to see, you'll find Christ in all things and through all yeah. things. Well, and I Josh, think our Orthodox brothers 
and sisters can show us that. So go go yeah. hang out with them because they're freaking awesome. It's because Josh, when Nebo said earlier that um, you can find Christ, you can find God in the hills, in the valleys, in the mountains, in the oceans, in the forests, anywhere. You can find him anywhere. We've been led to believe that that's true, except for places like bars and <laughs> places like that where sinners hang out. Um, and, I, and, you know, we've also been led to believe that our churches are supposed to look like 2021 with smoke machines and huge bands and uh, massive stages and celebrity pastors um, because we've been led to believe those things. And that's that's here in the United States and in North America. Um, but I don't know that that exists in the same way across the world. And it, I, I think if we pay attention, um, like we said, we found Christ today in this conversation. Rob Bell would be really proud of us, by the way, to say that we found <laughs> Christ in this conversation. In each other's story, we found Christ. Um, I think we we are led to believe in the in the Western faith traditions that, um, in in many ways, similar to the way the Catholic priests held captive the idea of Christ and the knowledge of Christ, um, in 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 our in in previous time in history, um, we are being told that. Christ looks a certain way and we need to find him a certain way. And um, we don't need to get into all that because I know we could keep going for hours and hours, but um, Nebo, thank you so much. Father Nebo, thank you for talking with us. And um, amazing. Thanks guys. Thank you for letting me share. Yeah. Thank you for being Christ to our listeners. Um, guys. And um, you know, I don't know if you want this, if you don't, you can say, not interested, <laughs> but, um, you know, is there any way that you would like people to come into contact with you? Or if that's not something you're interested in, you could just say, I'm going to live my life, but <laughs> no, I don't mind. I'll give you my email. Yeah. Email is the best way to get a hold of me. I take Sweet. a lot of phone calls. So phone calls aren't always the best, but yeah. email's really good for me. Well, yeah, maybe we, we can place that in the show notes. And yeah. We can, can snag that and put it down there for sure. Yes. For sure. Well, hey man. Um, wow. I've I definitely will. It's I know it's not for you, Nebo, but it's eight twelve here, and I will um, I will be going to bed tonight, feeling like I have um, just I've been spiritually restored. Um, so thank you so much for your conversation and for your your vast knowledge. Which, by the way, like most like Protestant pastors don't have all that historical knowledge and understanding and to be able to be like, Oh, when Josh was talking about patristic, like, Oh, well, that's the, that's the heresy from the fifth council. Like <laughs> most people don't have that knowledge. And like, so you've, you've brought so much to the table for us today in this conversation. Um, so man, uh, Josh, do you have anything else to add? No, I just, I want to say thank you and extend a welcome. You're welcome to come and hang out with us anytime. Yes. I would love to, I'd love to do this again and to, to talk more. There's so many interesting things that I want to learn from you guys. And it's yeah. such, such a different world, you know, like I think that's the thing that I got the most out of it myself is that you guys come from such a different perspective and such a different theological upbringing and the things that you were taught and how you understand Christ, you know, and, and your understanding of scripture is so different than us. And there's so much to be learned from each other, you know, that, that we yeah. bring things to, to the story of who Jesus Christ is. And it's, it's really wonderful. As long as, 
it brings us into relationship with him. Yeah. yeah. That's, to that's be that's ecumenical. Wow, what a concept, right? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Or at least try. Or at least, yeah. at least try. try. Yeah. 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 No, I'm I'm just grateful for the the time we spent. I, I told Marty before um that there was a, a time I reached out and tried to have a, a Greek Orthodox priest on and he just wasn't really about it. Um, which I respect, I understand. And so when Marty was like, Hey, can can uh Father Nebo come hang out? I was like, Yes, please. Uh, times a hundred. <laughs> I, I do have one request that whenever yes. I do anything like this with other people, I, I have this really, it's not silly, but it's its a very, um, what seems to be like a pietistic thing to do. Go for it. Really from the heart. And that is that if you guys can, can at least one time before the day ends, say a little prayer for me. Yes. Yeah. I would appreciate that. Um, you know, in ministry, when you're the priest, everyone asks you to pray for them. And it's very infrequently that anybody ever prays for their priest. Yeah. yeah, for their for their pastor, and it's 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 something that really sustains us mm. in in ministry. That when people pray for us as the minister, as the pastor, as the priest, yeah. it's something that really unfortunately happens very infrequently, at least in my tradition. So, well, I covet I covet your prayers, and if if you could do me that 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 joy and that blessing, yeah. to just say a little yeah. prayer in whatever way you want for me, I would greatly appreciate it. Well, not for the sake of boasting and praying in private or or in public, um, because I know Jesus says when you pray, go into your room and close the door. Um, And I will definitely be doing that. But Josh, we never. literalist. Yeah, we never end our podcast this way. But maybe um, what if I prayed for you right now? I would love to do do that. And uh, can I I add a caveat to it, Marty? Yep. You you pray and then I uh, I'm going to do something that I used to make fun of when I was uh, growing up. And I'm, I'm going to recite a prayer following your prayer. So you, you say your prayer from your heart and I'm going to read a prayer that someone else said, and cool. then we'll, we'll wrap up things that way. So we're not going to do our hockey ending. We're not going to do that. We're going to no. do this and this Go will caps. be our ending. Go caps. Woo! <laughs> Go caps. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then I'll teach you guys an Orthodox prayer that actually oh, comes please. straight straight from the scriptures there we go minds even more there we so go we'll so go, marty, we'll go marty josh josh nebo father nebo yes yeah all right let's do it let's pray Whatever. oh father we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the love that you have shown us today through relationship in a new friend on josh's part and an old friend on mine and god we we understand that um you are the giver of life and God, I pray that you would shower life over Father Nebo, that you would fa- that you would shower peace and joy over him. I know that um, the road we walk in life is never easy. And God, I pray that you would shower life over him, that you would allow him to see that he is loved not only directly from you, but from those around him and from those that he comes into contact with, that not only would he bring peace to them, but they would bring peace to him. God, give him the ability to know and sense and feel with real tangible feelings that he is loved and he is cared for and that he matters in your kingdom. And God, allow Father Nebo to understand that he is loved by me and that he is loved by Josh. And that when it all is said and done, God, everything that we do is for your glory and for your honor. None of it is for our goodness. None of it is for our desires. None of it is for our glory. It is all for you, God. Everything that we do, whether it be praying with a parishioner, 
whether it be leading a song, God, whether it be pouring a beer at our pub, God, we, everything we do is for your glory and nothing we do that is for our own benefit should be honored. So God, give us this understanding of your glory and give us this ability to see that you are love and that we are loved by you. Amen. Mm. Living and loving God, your spirit arrives as a morning rain, showing up like a surprise guest. Listening to her voice at my heart's doorway, I discover her name is love. But friends, call me mercy, she adds quickly. She reaches towards me, cupped hands, dripping holy water. I can heal you, she says shyly, looking into my eyes. See, taste this, and I drink from her vessel. O lady of life and love, your stream carves into my heart's desires, into my heart's darkness, and the light seeps in. Amen. When St. Paul was talking about prayer, he said that we could say a thousand words or we could say five and mean them. And out of that particular scripture is in the Orthodox Church, especially in the desert from the fourth to the sixth century, these desert fathers were perfecting the art of prayer. And they came up with what's considered the Orthodox prayer. And it's those five words. And in Greek, it's five words. In English, it's not because of language differences. But in Greek, it's Kyrie Suhistein which means, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Amen. 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 Well, listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Uh, our hope is that this was a blessing for you as much as it was for us. Um, yeah. And as you go out of this place, I just, I mean, I don't normally say things like this. I don't talk this way. Uh, but my prayer is that as you go out of this place, that you will encounter the love of Christ in ways that you never have before. Uh and that you will allow the love of Christ to shine through you and, you know, to everybody that you meet. And also I pray that in every single person that you encounter, um, that you would, eye, you would have eyes to see the face of Christ in each and every single person. Mm -hmm. And that you would allow that to transform how you live your life. And go Caps. Go Hawks. <laughs> go Blackhawks. Yes. Peace and love. Thanks, listeners. Have a good time.